So today we are starting a new series. Uh, this series is called Reasons to be Skeptical. Uh, so, uh, so we are dealing with this idea. So, so what, how have we gotten here? Well, we have been uh, spending the whole fall semester really kind of talking about the Bible. So uh, we started talking about the Bible. What is it? Uh, what kind of big story is it telling? We've answered questions about how do we read our Bibles well? Uh, what kind of... Uh, you know, tools can we have? What kind of basic understanding of Scripture should we have as we walk into it? And now I kind of want to deal with this idea because uh, right now there are, um, in our culture, essentially several sayings or several understandings about the Bible in which those who are more skeptical related to Scripture, they kind of accept these things as basic truth. So I want to introduce to you this idea of cultural mantras. What we're dealing with in this whole series is uh, basically coming against common objections to the Bible. And so I want to present to you the idea of cultural mantras. Cultural mantras are repeatable, sacred phrases that feel true. Repeatable, sacred phrases that feel true. Repeatable, meaning that they're memorable, that uh, you can kind of carry them with you. They're very easy to hold on to. Uh, Sacred, and the fact that they they really kind of pinpoint uh, the heartbeat of particular cultures, right? They pinpoint what is important to particular cultures. And then uh, they feel true, meaning that uh, there's something about them that tends to engage with our heart, to a certain level. They like uh, meet us at the, the level of our heart language and they, they speak to us in a certain way. And so it just so happens that there are a series of mantras that have been developed in relation to the Bible. I want to share with you four of them. One mantra that has been developed in relation to the Bible is this. The Bible supports slavery. Uh, another, God commands genocide in the Bible. Another, the Bible is anti-science. And then finally, a fourth, the Bible is oppressive towards women. Right, so, so uh, in culture, these are basic, uh, basic general understandings, things that have been said about the Bible and have been accepted as truth to a certain degree. And so in certain circles, they have been repeated so much that, uh, that broadly, like within that culture, yes, within that group, they are assu- um, kind of... Uh, you know, known to be true, but then beyond that culture, it kind of ripples out from there, and people start to assume that it's true, right? So, so over the next four weeks, we're going to address these stated reasons to be skeptical of Scripture, really for three reasons. I have kind of three big outcomes that we are aiming at with this series. So the first outcome is this. I want to strip cultural mantras of their power over you. I want to strip them of your power over you. So uh, my, uh, I, when I went to college, I had uh, a friend, or several friends of mine actually, who uh, repeated to me some cultural mantras from that time about Christianity and about the Bible. And I was unequipped to deal with them. And so what that meant was, uh, it, didn't, it didn't convince me to kind of abandon my faith, but what it did do was it left me deeply discouraged while I was trying to navigate life in college, right? Because I just didn't know how to converse with uh, people who were assuming truth. I didn't know how to engage with them, and I kind of felt like I was uh, stuck empty-handed, right? And so 
This is, by the way, what the enemy does. He combines truth with lies and mixes them up so that all of it kind of feels true and then uses it to discourage us, uses it to knock us off of our path. And this is what I want to do. I want to strip some of these mantras of their power to do that to us. So, uh, so that's the first thing. The second outcome I have is this. I want to equip us with simple biblical responses that undermine cult- cultural mantras. Simple biblical responses that undermine cultural mantras. So, so as we engage with people, we, we hear what they're saying and we are able to, we kind of are just equipped, we have a few tools in our chest to, to simply say, that, that's not exactly the way that you think it is, right? So uh, the, third, the third outcome that I have for us this morning is this, to increase our confident surrender to God and his word. Right, that our confidence as we go through this series, that the things that people typically say, that they might be inclined to say to us to make us disbelieve the Bible or to convince the others that the Bible isn't true, that, that as we go through this series, we would be more and more convinced that we can confidently give all that we are to God and to his work. So this week, uh, we are considering the idea that the Bible supports slavery. My goal every week as we present these, call them arguments, call them mantras, uh, my goal each week is to present to you the best version of the argument that I can. Uh, I'm doing what is called steel manning my opponent. So uh, if you've ever heard of people building straw men in their argument, the reason people say, oh, you're building a straw man in your argument is because basically you're building up an argument that nobody is making, and then you're knocking it down, proving that you think your idea is better than the straw man when actually nobody believes the straw man in the first place. That doesn't actually represent the perspective that's being there. And so I want to build, I want to have integrity in the way that I engage with these thoughts, and I want to build, give you the best version of the argument that is presented. So here is the reason to be skeptical for today. The reason that's given is framed in terms of a question. How can you trust the Bible when the Bible condones slavery? How is it possible? How can you possibly trust Scripture when the Bible condones slavery? And then, uh, the way that you know, this argument gets there is this. You, you might encounter a series of questions. The first question you would encounter is, tell me, believer, is it immoral for humans to enslave humans? Is it immoral for humans to enslave humans? Your gut reaction to that question, rightfully so, is yes. It is immoral for humans to enslave humans. So the next question that is asked is this. Tell me, believer, did the Bible allow humans to enslave humans? And if you read the Bible and you get into the Old Testament, you would easily be led to say, yes, it did allow humans to enslave humans. So the next logical question is this. Christian, isn't the God of the Bible immoral? It's the only logical conclusion that you can draw from those two questions, right? Yes, it's immoral for humans to enslave humans. Yes, the Bible allowed humans to enslave humans. So the God of the Bible must be immoral then. Leviticus 25, 45 through 46 says this. It's a command to the Israelites or a direction to the Israelites. You may also buy from the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you. These are non-Israelites who have been born in your land that they may be your property. The Bible is condoning 
human beings being the property of other human beings. Verse 46, you may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may take, make slaves of them, but over your brothers and the people of Israel, you shall not rule over one another ruthlessly. So uh, the idea that's being presented here is that Israelites could go to foreign nations and buy foreign slaves and have the freedom to, uh, to kind of pass those slaves on to the next generation of their family, right? So our impulse, when we are presented with these arguments, you know, the Bible condones slavery, our impulse is to say something like, no, he doesn't, or you don't know what you're talking about, right? That's not the God that we serve, or, and we sometimes make this really big mistake, and I want to encourage everybody in this room, if you're listening to me this morning, do not make the mistake that you're about to hear me make. We might say something like this. Well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament, church, that's not true. People have been, uh, let's just say, that has been considered heresy in the past, right? So, so, uh, so the God of the Old Testament, but that's, that's kind of our impulse, right? God of the Old Testament's a different God than the God of the New Testament, right? That's not true. So church, we need to be very clear on this. God makes allowance for slavery in the founding documents of Israel. It is absolutely true. God privileged his people and their land to be able to own other people from other lands indefinitely, right? There's no kind of timeline put on that. They could pass them on generations and generations. Israelites, for what it's worth, they could also sell themselves into slavery, but what's interesting is that the Israelite had this thing called the year of jubilee, meaning after the course of seven years, an Israelite could be released from their captivity, released from their slavery, but you know, foreigners did not get jubilee. Foreigners did not get kind of an end date to the time that they were property to somebody else. And then, like in the Revolutionary New Testament, you get this. Slaves, obey your masters, right? So again, you, you have these things picking up. It's no wonder then that you have uh, Christians in uh, 18th and 19th century America justifying their enslaving of other people in the antebellum South. It's just, I mean, it makes sense. They're taking these verses and using them to apply. So then, this is the conclusion, like this is kind of leads you to draw out the reason. If God really was a God who cared for the dignity of all humans, how could he condone and reinforce human beings being treated like property? And then the only proper conclusion then, if you're saying that the God of the Bible is immoral, then really what you're saying is that the Bible was written by immoral people who built a picture of God to justify their immorality on other people. And that's what the kind of logical conclusion that people who make these arguments would draw to. So we're going to address this reality. This is kind of the best version of the argument that I can present to you. And we're gonna do three things this morning. So the first thing that we need to do as we approach the idea of slavery, we need to offload some cultural baggage that we have as we evaluate the idea of slavery. The second thing that we need to do is we need to look at what the Bible actually does say about slavery. And then finally, I wanna give us some simple responses that undermine this mantra. So first, let's throw out our baggage. Um, C.S. Lewis, he, uh, you know, is an apologist, uh, Christian apologist, uh, prolific writer of the early 20th century, and uh, what he did, he developed this term called chronological snobbery, which I, I love so much. Uh, it suggests the idea 
what we do, we people who live kind of furthest along in history, is that we tend to think that we are the most morally advanced people, that we know the best, that we understand the best, and so from our perch, on top of all of history, we can look down on the rest of history and judge rightly and evaluate because we have the best perspective. Right? That is the tendency we think. It's actually uh, a part of us lifting ourselves up in pride, and we need to reject that idea before we engage this topic. Right? So instead, what we need to do Instead of bringing our terms and our understanding into the Bible and kind of reading the Bible through that, we need to come to the Bible and read the Bible on its terms. So uh, when the Bible talks about slavery, what do we do? Well, we automatically, especially as Americans, automatically read ideas of slavery through the lens of 18th and 19th century North American shadow slavery. And the slavery of the Bible and that kind of slavery are two different things. Now, That does not mean that the Bible doesn't have something to say about the shadow slavery that occurred in 18th and 19th century America, but we can't use that as the lens through which we read Scripture. So when we hear slavery, we can't help but kind of filter this through our own education, our own experience about the slave trade that was a major part of kind of the first hundred years of our country. And so we read slavery and we hear abuse, we hear kidnapping, We hear shipping people away from their home. We hear subjecting of people who were told that they were inferior because of the color of their skin. We hear terrible treatment and diminishment of dignity. Now, for what it's worth, in the ancient Near East, oh, that's fun. (laughs) My watch is listening to me. That's so strange. Uh, So, so, uh, when... When we do this, we read with this lens. The reality is, yes, in the ancient Near East, there was a diminishment of dignity of people who were owned by other people, right? But the category of 18th and 19th century slavery does not transport back on the Bible and then become the lens through which we read that slavery. So we need to understand the Bible on its terms. Okay, so throw out our baggage, come to the Bible on its terms. What does the Bible say? This is our main point this morning. The whole Bible reveals God's process of undoing human enslavement of humans. Now, why did I highlight the whole Bible? Because the skeptics who make arguments want to look at one particular aspect of the Bible without considering the entire story of Scripture and how that particular aspect fits into the context of Scripture. And that's why it's important to say that the whole Bible tells this story, God's process of undoing human enslavement of humans. And really, the Bible shows us three key things that I want to look at. First, the Bible shows us that God's creational intent had no room for slavery shows us that God's creational intent had no room for slavery. In the beginning, God created male and female. In Genesis 1.28, he created them in the image of God, right? So they are imbued with a certain dignity because God created them that way. And then it says in verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, right? Have dominion over the fish, 
and over the birds and over every living thing, every creeping thing is another translation that occurs there. The idea is humans are given dominion, but they are not given dominion over each other. They're given dominion over creation. They're given dominion over the fish and the birds, right? This was God's kind of vision for humanity. So, so slavery is nowhere to be found in God's intention for creation. Now, what happens if you keep reading in Genesis? Well, you read that human beings rebelled against God and what he wanted. We read that there was a fall, that there is, then becomes competition between humanity. They, they start fighting and striving against each other. We see murder and we see brokenness spread. And so when slavery occurs, and it does occur, it occurs as a result of deviating from God's creational intent. So the skeptic would say something like, well, if God is God, how could he let that happen? Well, God apparently created humanity with the ability to choose, and we chose ourselves to be God instead of him. And this is what resulted. The practice of slavery is one of the results of that choice. So, number two then, interestingly enough, God... The primary way that he reveals himself in Scripture, one of the primary ways that he reveals himself in Scripture, is as a redeemer of slaves. God reveals himself as a redeemer of slaves. So what happens to Israel? Israel ends up under Egyptian dominion, right? Uh, People ruling over other people. Israel ends up under Egyptian rule. And this is how it happened. Genesis 47, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? That's, uh, that's uh, Joseph's brothers. What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. When they say servants, and for what it's worth, nine times out of ten, when you see the word servants in, uh, in the Old Testament, it can be equally translated as slaves. Servants and slaves are like the same word when you see that English translation. So what they're saying is your slaves... Your servants are shepherds, as our father were, fathers were. And then in verse 4, it goes on. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. What was happening? Israel was coming to Pharaoh. Uh, the, the Jacob's family was coming to Pharaoh. And they had realized we don't have what we need to be able to take care of our families, to be able to take care of our flocks. And so they had come to Pharaoh to indenture themselves to Pharaoh. They needed land. They needed a place to live. They needed food to care for themselves. So they became slaves, servants of Pharaoh in that instance. They indentured themselves to Pharaoh. So from that point on, Over the course of generations, Pharaoh starts to get afraid because these people are multiplying like crazy. There's so many of them. They keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he becomes concerned, right? The the person of Pharaoh, like the generations down in Pharaoh's line, he becomes very concerned that these people are going to overtake him, that they're going to rebel against him. So what does he do? He does two things. Number one, he makes their work increasingly hard. They're brick makers, and he does everything that he can to kind of increase the oppression that is upon them. And the second thing that he does is he attempts genocide against them by trying to kill the firstborn son, or the firstborn, or sorry, all the male children, right? No male children can be born. If a, if a child comes out and it's male, that child is to be murdered, right? So all of that was within his right, because in the ancient world, uh, kind of the standard of morality that you live by was might makes right. 
right? So the strongest person gets to determine what is right. And uh, Pharaoh was the king, and Pharaoh held this slave, this indentureship contract, and he was mightier, and they were his slaves. And so he was within his rights to do what he did. And these slaves cry out to God because they have no other options. And God sends Moses and Aaron to put Pharaoh to shame and to redeem his people with a mighty hand. Exodus 8.1. So this is, this is how God presents himself to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may what? Serve me. Pharaoh, they're slaves to you now. I want to buy them from you. Let them go that they may become slaves to me. Right? Let them come out to the desert and be my people. So, like, I know they're your property, but they're my people. Please send them to be enslaved to serve me. So how does he go about this process? Well, he gives Pharaoh tons of room. He gives him at least 10, uh, 10 opportunities to do something about this, right? He sends 10 plagues, and the very last plague is the angel of death. And how does Israel get redeemed out of Egypt? They slaughter a lamb, and they put the blood over the door, and the angel of death passes over their house and only goes to the houses of the Egyptians. And what did Israel say? They said the lamb died so that we don't have to. And then by that, God redeems his people out into the desert that they may serve him. God comes to them and says, I've heard your cries, and I have been moved to compassion, and you are my treasured possession. So you belong to me now. And God becomes the compassionate master that they need. Notice, it's not like freedom from obligation to any master. He comes and buys them, and he becomes their master. So that's the way he reveals himself to Israel. And then finally, this, the third thing that the Bible shows us is this. God assumed Israel would practice slavery and he regulated it. He assumed Israel would practice slavery and he regulated it. And we primarily see those regulations in Exodus chapter 21 and Leviticus chapter 25. So I wanna tell you, when you encounter these kinds of ideas, don't try to get God off the hook first. Right? Because the reality is he did allow slavery in the law. But we also need to define what we're talking about with the word. So, uh, so again, throw away our baggage and let's talk about what slavery in the Old Testament was. We already started to see a picture of this. Slavery in the Old Testament is this. It is indentured servitude. A contract by which a person may pay off a debt and or receive shelter, food, clothing, and protection by becoming the property of another person. Okay, so that's the idea that we're talking about, right? Uh, there are four pathways. For what it's worth in Israel, there are four pathways to slave ownership. Uh, you can become an owner of slaves if a person comes to you and indentures themselves to you. Uh, you can receive a person as an inheritance. You uh, can obtain a person as a result of sanctioned war, meaning there were kind of laws created that when Israel went in and did war that they could at times take prisoners of war and those prisoners of war would become slaves, which is preferable to death, just for what it's worth. And then four, you can redeem or buy a person by paying off their debt to the person that they're currently indentured to. You 
could not kidnap. It was off limits. So Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So notice that this does not just apply to the person who stole him. It applies to the person who bought that stolen slave. And anyone thereafter who is found in possession of that stolen person, those people are to be put to death. It was immoral to kidnap. That was not on the table at all. Right, and so then, for what it's worth, there are additional rights afforded to Jewish slaves over foreign slaves. If you were a Jew, you could not become permanent property. If you were a Jew, there were kind of additional layers of protection. So if you were to go and say, I have a debt, uh, it was first required that uh, people in your family come and pay off your debt for you so that you didn't have to go into slavery. Right, so there were a number of layers of protection for Israelites into this situation, but, uh, but this is kind of the reality, the kind of general overview of what the Bible says. So now what we're going to do is we're going to let the skeptic into this conversation, right? They say the God of the Bible must be immoral for condoning slavery in Old Testament law, and we say yes, of course. God makes allowance for slavery in the Old Testament, but that does not mean that God prefers slavery or that it is his ideal, It means that God is putting boundaries around something. He's actually regulating something. So then the skeptic would respond, why regulate when he could abolish it? Why would God regulate slavery in that moment? If slavery is not part of God's ideal, why would he regulate it instead of abolishing it? And here, uh, there are two mistakes that are made. Number one, they make the mistake of misunderstanding the ancient context. Because, church, this is what we need to kind of grasp in our person. Ancient world slavery gave vulnerable people a way to survive. Ancient world slavery gave the most vulnerable a way to survive. There was not a social welfare system in Israel. There were not, like, taxes being paid. The government was not distributing to people in need. There was none of that, right? Those in debt did not have a system by which they could declare bankruptcy, right? The poor did not have clear pathways to food or clothing or shelter. Foreigners had no way, when they like crossed into a new land, they had no way of obtaining property to call their own. There was no currency, right? Without property, you have no way to like have a means to make a living. So for better or worse, like slavery was a crucial piece of the social welfare system. It is what protected the most vulnerable of the day. Right, so, so that's kind of the first mistake is that we misunderstand by not understanding kind of the realities of what it meant to be a foreigner or to be vulnerable in that society. But the second thing, that, the second kind of mistake that we make is this. Uh, it's an assumption that God's regulation is God's ideal. And this is what we need to understand. The primary function of law is to restrain evil. Why do I say that? Because God is not here trying to implement his ideas into the world with his law. He is right now at this point doing all that he can to restrain the sin that exists within Israel. Right, so, so the law is meant to mitigate sin in human hearts. Right, eight of the Ten Commandments, how do they start? Do not, thou shalt not. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not do this. God is not implementing his ideal. He is putting restrictions around the things that can go wrong. 
right? He is restricting human sin in human hearts. God's plan for bringing about uh, his ideal for the world was never about a law. It was always about a person, right? He was preparing Israel for the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be the one who could come and resolve the brokenness, but until the Messiah could come, the law worked to restrain and preserve Israel, right? So illustration of this, God in his law regulates divorce. Does that mean divorce is God's ideal? No, by no means, right? Jesus talks about that. Jesus literally says, God put that in the law because your hearts are evil, right? He was restraining the evil inside of you. That's why he had to write that there. But I'm telling you, like divorce is not a good thing. You should not be walking down that pathway. So is a, a world without slavery a better world than one with, it, with slavery? Yes, obviously. Absolutely it is. But to abolish slavery in this context would have upended all of the social order and very likely the most vulnerable would have suffered. So God regulated slavery. So just to clarify this, the Old Testament law was not written to create utopia, but to regulate sin so that the nation of Israel might remain intact for the coming Messiah, right? This is why we talk about the whole Bible. The Bible is telling a continuous story. It is not telling us a story of one particular place at one point in time. God was preparing Israel for the Messiah, and the Messiah would be the one who would begin to implement God's ideals into his people. So, briefly, we're going to kind of consider these regulations and why they matter, because I want you to understand then what the regulations were doing in their context. So, uh, like we said earlier, Jews had more rights as slaves than non-Jews did. We're not actually going to even consider laws related to Jewish people. I will just simply say that like, God's expectation was that people within his nation would shed extreme degrees of grace towards each other, right? So with that being said, I want to share this chart with you. This chart is from a website. The website is called bethinking.org, bethinking.org. That's where that comes from, and it kind of categorizes for us the basic differences between kinds of slavery throughout history, and for what it's worth, Old Testament slavery, this is Old Testament slavery kind of set against uh, a bunch of different slaveries throughout history, but for what it's worth, Old Testament slavery is not just offset against other slaveries throughout history. It's offset against the other nations that surrounded Israel, right? It differentiated itself from the other nations surrounding Israel. So we're going to keep this up here, and I'm just going to talk you through a few significant things that were extended to slaves in Israel. First of all, all indentured servants, foreign and Jewish, were given a Sabbath in Exodus 20, verse 10. Right? That didn't happen in Egypt, for what it's worth. Remember, that's the reason that God says it. You were slaves in Egypt, right? and your work was very hard. I'm giving you a Sabbath. Right? And all of the slaves had to celebrate the Sabbath. Uh, Jewish, uh, or any slaves, all indentured slaves, were involved in the celebration of Jewish holidays, meaning they got time off from their work for that. Uh, they were given sexual protection, which was not true of other slaves of the day. Right? You could not commit adultery, and there were laws regulating adultery and premarital sex and all of this stuff, right? And so that meant that slaves were protected by those other laws. 
They were given protection from abuse. Right? Exodus 21, 20, it says, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, if he is not avenged, for the slave is his money. So in other words, like the indentured servant had financial value to the owner, but the reality is, if that owner was responsible for the death of their slave, the owner was accountable with their life, right? And no other, no other country around Israel was that true, right? Uh, so there's that, and then also Exodus 21, 26, and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of the eye. Meaning, if a, if a slave is exacting some kind of, or sorry, a, a master is exacting some kind of discipline or whatever it might be upon their slave, if that slave loses any part of their body, it doesn't matter what the debt is, it doesn't matter what the indentureship is, that slave is set free. They no longer have to answer for what they are indentured for. Right, so, so there was protection from abuse in these circumstances. Right, uh, slaves were given a right to legal redress. They were given a right to a fair trial within Israel. Job 31.13 addresses this. Abused slaves escaped from other countries, right? So, so they escaped from their master in other nations. When they come into Israel, Israel was commanded, you shall not give them back to their masters. They stay as foreigners and sojourners in your land. And then you add on to all of that, the command that Jesus says that the whole law rests on, which is this, Leviticus 19, 33 and 34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Right? God uniquely regulated slavery in Israel so that Israel would become a safe haven for slaves from all of the other nations around. Right? So, so that vulnerable people and indebted people, wherever they were enslaved, they would want to escape to Israel so that they could be safe in Israel. Like, in Israel, owned people had rights and protections that existed nowhere else. So in Israel, buying a slave from another nation could actually be framed as an act of compassion, right? They were giving that person a household, an identity. They were giving them protection. They were giving them food and a place to live in a, in a nation whose kind of foundational command of how they thought about other people was to love your neighbor as yourself. But again, remember, the existence of slavery is still not the ideal. So even though God regulated it and God made Israel a safe haven within the surrounding nations, it's still not the ideal. God's plan to renew the brokenness of creation was not a law, but a person. And that's how we're finally going to end this. So remember, the whole Bible reveals God's process of undoing human enslavement of humans. If we follow the story of Israel throughout Scripture to the New Testament, we find Jesus and Jesus comes as the promised Messiah, the one who would write his law on their hearts and take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes, and he submits himself willingly to be wrongly accused, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be tortured, and to die. Why? Why would we do this? Why, like, why would Jesus do this? Well, if we read 
the whole Bible. What we understand, the, the testimony of Scripture tells us about humanity is that we have indentured ourselves to rebellion. We have indentured ourselves to sin. We are owned by sin. We did this because we chose our way instead of God's way. And so we walked and chose to hand ownership of us over to a different master. And this is why the Bible uses slavery as a primary metaphor for our relationship to sin. It's saying slavery, or sorry, sin rules us. We belong to it. It determines our destiny. We willingly entertain it, and it abuses our souls and turns us inward on ourselves. You know what? Jesus is compassionate. He died on the cross because the wages of sin is death. And he redeemed those who trust in him. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain, the rule of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Jesus pays with his life to buy us out of the domain of sin and into the domain of his kingdom, the forgiveness of sins. What that means is that we have changed hands. We have moved from sin being our master to Jesus being our master. Now, why take the time to make that point? Because it is ultimately what moves how, how Christians are expected to deal with the institution of slavery. Like, if we all have one master, and that master has redeemed us and forgiven our greatest debt, then who are we to hold debts over the heads of those who are indentured to us? Right, so if you have time this week, I'd encourage you just to go and read the New Testament book of Philemon because it plays this reality out in a blatant way. Paul essentially calls to this guy Philemon and says to him, you need to release your slave Onesimus so that Onesimus can serve better the expansion of the gospel throughout the known world. Right, so, uh, and more pointedly, we see this as the New Testament goes forward. Paul's giving Timothy commands, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Isn't it interesting that enslavers, those who own slaves, are lumped in with this category of lawlessness. So church, the whole Bible reveals God's process of undoing human enslavement of humans. So what? I have one this morning. And this is kind of, so I gave us a few simple responses to our skeptics earlier. This is the most important response. It is because of Jesus that we find slavery outrageous. So, the skeptic will say, the only right response to slavery is to abolish it. That is the only right and moral response to slavery is to abolish it. Western society, we only got to the point of realizing this because of the influence of Jesus followers. 
If Jesus' followers were not following Jesus, we would not have cared about slavery. It would not have been important to us. The world, before Jesus' followers were influencing it, was remarkably more dark and far less concerned with human dignity. Right? Followers of Jesus then come along into this dark world and have commands laid upon them like love your neighbor as yourself, written on their hearts. So what did they do? Well, they learned to release their slaves. They uplifted the dignity of the oppressed. And yes, some Christians who seem to be following Jesus also failed to understand God's heart in this regard. And they participated in the evil that was slavery in the new world. But I want to tell you this. Our cultural escape from slavery came as Christians were convicted by the Holy Spirit and were won over by the grace of Jesus and sought to extend his compassion lavishly to the people that they saw. The new world does not learn to abolish and abandon slavery without the influence of Jesus' followers. So I just want to give you some examples. There are four stalwarts of American history who were key to seeing, uh, moving along the abolition of slavery in our country. Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Tubman, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, all four of them, draw their motivation in both subverting and bringing down the American slave trade. They all draw their motivation from the influence of Christ in their lives. And then, of course, you have William Wilberforce in England, who, as a follower of Jesus, used his position in England's parliament to establish, number one, slavery-free opportunities across the world, right? Because he recognized there is this problem that people have to indenture themselves because they can't get property, and they can't find currency, and they can't have a means to take care of themselves. And so he started creating opportunities across the world so that slavery did not have to exist, Number one, and number two, in Parliament, he worked to pass the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 in England and all of England's colonies so that 800,000 slaves would be set free across the world. And then along comes John Newton. Uh, John Newton was a man who traded slaves. He was Uh, In this moment, he's in the middle of a storm. He's stuck at sea in his ship. Uh, The ship is about to sink, and so he cries out to God. And in this moment, God, John Newton had been a Christian, uh, you know, had understood the gospel, had heard people preach it. But in this moment, God allowed him to see the atrocity in which he was participating as a slave trader. And seeing that atrocity crushed his soul. He he looked at, I believe this about Jesus. This is not compatible with the way I'm living my life. Right? He recognized it and he repented. And in his words, in that moment, he started following Jesus. So from that moment, he committed his life to helping William Wilberforce go around and free slaves And for what it's worth, church, John Newton is the one who wrote these words that all of us have come to hold dear. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We would not know as a culture how to find slavery problematic if Jesus' followers had not become influential in the world. So I want to tell you finally this morning, if you have not trusted in Jesus, this is your opportunity. 
If you haven't trusted in Jesus, this is your chance. He is a good, compassionate master, and he extends redemption to every person enslaved to sin. And he does it by giving his very life. So I would plead with you this morning, as you have heard the story of God's story of slavery, not just of what he was doing with human interaction uh, with other humans, but what he was doing to set us free from a wicked master that was turning us inward on ourselves. I would plead with you to believe in him. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you give us freedom. That you enable us to be set free from something that was oppressing our souls. And then I thank you that you have used this influence that you have done on our hearts, that you've written your law on our our hearts, and that you've taken people throughout history who have been influenced by that, and you've taken them to influence their spheres, to use the responsibility that you've given them and actually do something to impact uh, a positive outlook on this thing that we call slavery. Lord, more than any of that, I pray for the skeptics in our spheres of influence. Lord, I recognize that our arguments against them are not the thing that would convince them. Lord, may we live our lives in such a way that they might desire the things that we believe to be true. But Lord, may we also be able to answer them when they have questions. Lord, would you help bring these things to mind? Would you increase our own confidence in you and your word? And would you enable us to be more fully surrendered to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.